0: Fathers, we uh, worship this morning. We lift up our prayers of thanksgiving to you. We come with gratitude in our hearts for the grace, for the gifts that you have given us. We thank you for the breath that we have, our lives. We thank you for our families, our communities. We thank you for our new lives. We thank you for the, the gift of life eternal we have been given in your son. We thank you for his incarnation. We thank you for his teachings and his ministry and his crucifixion and his resurrection. We thank you for his ascension where he now prays with us and for us. We thank you for the spirit that's been poured out into our lives. We pray that you would Give us hearts that would be sensitive to the Spirit's leading. This morning, as your Spirit moves among us through your word and the community of your people, that we would have hearts um, receptive to the Spirit's work in our lives, um, that we might come to know you and know you more faithfully. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. It is good to see all of you. Yesterday, I had the privilege of performing a wedding, and so I had to do this quite a bit, and it's one of uh, my favorite parts about being a minister. The state of Texas has given me a lot of power. I create families. I don't destroy them yet. But I'm at this wedding last night, and there are these adorable— twins, infant twins, maybe six, seven months old, boy and a girl. And if you've been at a wedding and you have little kids in the family, you know it's quite an ordeal when it comes time for photos. It's hit or miss, right? And so it's this beautiful outdoor wedding. I know it was a little foggy, but it actually kind of added to the mood with the lighting and everything. It worked. And they were taking pictures in front of this this really big tree, uh, and they had the two little the infants, the twins, and of course they're trying to get them to smile and have a good kind of look for the picture. And so what do you do to a little baby to try to get them to smile? Well, everybody within like a 30-mile radius acts like a clown, okay? Like it doesn't matter if you're part of the family or you're not. Everyone starts yelling and throwing, you know, things in the air and making noises, and you've got the little girl, and she is all about this, Okay. I mean, right off the bat, she's smiling and giggling, and getting, she's getting close-ups. It's not about the groom and the bride anymore. And the little boy, though, he's holding out, maybe for like five, ten minutes. People start yelling louder, and you're like, you're going to scare him. I don't think he knows exactly what's going on. And eventually, with this whole like, crowd of people um, trying to get his attention and, and make amuse him, he puts his hand to his mouth, and then blows a kiss at, you know, whomever um, was doing that to him in the crowd, and then this big smile, and you got this this perfect picture. There's a, a, a Catholic theologian uh, who I like. His name's Hans Urs von Balthasar, which is an amazing name, and he once wrote about the relationship of love between a mother and her child and how that can illustrate for us the relationship that We have with God and with his love for us. He wrote, After a mother has smiled at her child for many days and weeks, one day comes where she finally receives her child's smile and response. She has awakened love in the heart of her child. And as the child awakens to love, it also awakens to the knowledge of the one who loves it. If you've had a a child or you you had a a little brother or sister, you've been around in some capacity, you know for, for weeks... Sometimes, months, all this love is poured into to a child. And then there comes that magical day. I can remember I was there when my little brother, who was born 13 years after me, when he had his first smile. And you would have thought, right, like the world just ended, we just won the lottery. After all this love being poured out, it gets sent back. And, and Balthasar says this is a, a microcosm, this is a picture of creation and redemption and salvation. He says what's, what's been happening is God has been loving the world. He's been sending his love to us. He most fully does this in the incarnation. He becomes a human being. His son takes on human flesh, and lives and, and dies in our place and, and rises again. And, and, and Balthazar says this is, this is God smiling at us. So the scriptures in, in 1 John will say we love God because he first loved us. A lot like a, a, a child smiling back at her her mother. He says, Jesus is the the smile of God. And as we receive God's love and we receive God's love and we receive God's love, eventually and slowly we start to smile back. It's a great picture of worship. It's a great picture of um, the reality of salvation. It's also illustrative of the fact that our homes are where we learn how to love. It's in our homes where we first start to love and where we see what love looks like, what it can look like, where we start to take on practices of love, both good and sometimes bad. We've been talking for a few weeks now about how you and I, we have our love shaped, sometimes for the kingdom of Jesus, sometimes for the gospel, sometimes for Jesus and his church and his mission, and sometimes for other things. We've been talking about liturgy. Uh, which I've defined as identity-shaping rituals and practices. These things that we do that do things to us. And what we've, we've talked about is that, you know, as embodied creatures, you and I are liturgical creatures. We're creatures who, who participate in routines and rituals. If you're this alien looking at human beings, one thing you'll notice, they do the same thing over and over and over and over again. And it starts to shape who they are. It starts to shape how they love. And we talked about the importance of worship, the rituals, the routines of worship in shaping our loves. And we've talked about how the world is full of other liturgies, other practices, other um, places where people are invited into a way of life that starts to shape them. And this is why we said culture is so good at creating consumerist, materialist, it's, it's, I mean, if you look out, it's pretty, they're pretty good at it. The reason is because all over the place, at all times, we're participating in the practices of consuming, acquiring, producing. Even the way we talk about time is financial. You spend it or you waste it, you invest it. I mean, we, we very much have cognitively framed our entire world in kind of like a hyper-capitalism. I'm not like an evil communist or anything, right? But I'm just saying we've, we've kind of allowed a, a financial view of the world to kind of take over us, and, and there's a reason for that. It's because we do this over and over and over again. No one ever gave a sermon and said, do you want to be a consumerist? It wasn't an intellectual-type conversion. We just became them by doing things over and over and over again. We've talked about how the, the, the power of worship lies in its formative abilities. When we come to worship week in and week out, over the months, over the years, we find a place, we find activities like the word and the table where God has promised to work on us, where the spirit has been promised to, to work in us, to shape us, to form us, to, to move our, our loves in the right direction. If you have a Bible, open up with me to the book of Deuteronomy. What I want to do this morning is now move out of Sunday mornings and look into how we might be called to worship from Monday through Saturday and what that might look like for us. What we'll say this morning is this. A capital L liturgy, Christian worship, should produce lowercase l liturgies of the home of the household, in our homes with our spouses and our kids. We're called to pull out, to receive the worship of the church into our everyday lives and allow it to continue to shape and to form and to mold us. You know, if you, if you just quantify the time, you know, you might have an hour every Sunday, you know, maybe two hours if I've got a really good or boring sermon. Let me go long. And then if you just were to tally up, the amount of time you spent watching commercials. It would quickly out I mean we got the Super Bowl coming, hopefully some good commercials our way. You and I actually we're often unaware of how many times we are advertised to every day. It's hundreds, thousands, all over the place in ways that we don't even know. And they're good at it. They use they use the latest neuroscience. I mean, they're, they're good at shaping and, and finding their way into our, our brains and our lives and our everyday actions. And so if you only had an hour of formation to try to counter all of those hours of formation, you'd have this uphill battle, and you you might start to be pessimistic. You might start to, to lose hope. You might start to wonder, how could anyone be formed in the right way if there are these other agendas tugging on us and, and trying to shape and and. Uh, capture our allegiance and our loves. The good news is, though, we can transfer worship into our our lives. We can transfer powerful, life-changing liturgy into our lives. I want to look at a a passage in Deuteronomy, um, chapter 6. We'll pick it up in verse 1. God's speaking to the the Israelites. He's kind of giving them commands to form their nation. And in verse 1, it reads like this. Now is the commandment The statutes and the rules, now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules, that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, so the family, the household, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. A a couple things to notice here. Notice the emphasis on commandments. The author, in a sense, is seeing how many times he can put that word in. The commandments that I have commanded you, when I was talking about the commandments I gave, these instructions God has, has given. And notice what the commandments are about When we keep reading in verse 4, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. The commandment is to shape and to form, to pay attention to, to cultivate, to be intentional about what you love, what you are starting to love, what you will more fully love. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. So not only are you to cultivate this love, you're supposed to pass it on to your family members. Your children shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. He's saying all the time. Let this saturate your entire kind of household, your entire environment as a family. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They'll be as frontlets between your eyes. You'll write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. So the command... It's about love, and it's about loving God with everything, not being pulled off in another direction and starting to love stuff or love your identity or love your your power. And notice the, the promise of the command. It's life. God doesn't say, I command you this because I like to see you suffer. He says, no, if you do this, you'll find life. The scriptures say the reason we're commanded not to love other things, the reason why idolatry is such a a negative thing in scripture is because it leads to death. Because if you love God, then you your days are long. You're living in this land flowing with milk and honey. And if you start to love other things, you start to glitch. You start to scrape. You start to hurt. You start to experience pain. That's not how the world was created to function. This commandment given to Israel, verse 4 is often considered the most important verse, the most foundational text that the Israelites had. It's called the Shema. They would repeat it over and over and over again. In it, you have um, the formulation of monotheism, which in its time, if you could try to imagine what it would be like to be an ancient Near Eastern person, is a very radical idea. So Christianity has kind of killed all the other gods. There's very few polytheists around. Do you know one? Maybe a couple of us, most of us don't. There's a few big monotheistic religions, but it really takes over when Christianity starts to become really powerful in the Middle Ages. But in the ancient world, it's this polytheistic world full of gods. And and unfortunately, these gods aren't super nice. They're not inclined to treat you favorably. And so really your life was one of cultivating favor with these gods. It'll, all times. And so in, in any certain sphere in your life, there would be these gods that would be believed to govern those spheres, and you would have to do what you would need to do um, as prescribed in order to appease those gods. And it was kind of a frightful, anxiety-filled life. When you go to the river, there's a river god that you need to worry about. And when you go to the forest, the trees, there's, there's that god. And when you go to the, the temple, the marketplace, Or those gods. In that context, there's a group of people, an idea that's never been seen before, who say, there's only one God. In fact, we have his name. If you see there, Lord in all caps, that's your English translation telling you the personal name of God, Yahweh. It separates him from other gods. Imagine how dangerous monotheism is, or would feel if you've been brought up and you live in this world with all of these gods. And one day you decide, I'm not going to care about them. I'm just going to go to the river and come back. I mean, to us, this sounds kind of like obvious, right? But this is a radical trust, faith in, in one God and in that life being found in that, that one God. And he says to to cultivate our love in the context of our Families, our homes, our households, with our children, when we walk and when we sit, when we lay and when we rise, bind them on your hand, write them around, constantly be cultivating your love, pull worship out of its most primary form, which I think still is Sunday, and let it start to seep into and saturate your everyday lives. This is, I think, how. God has designed us to be able to continue to be formed in a world that that constantly tries to to pull us away. And so the task for us is to to guard our hearts, to defend our our homes, to allow the worship of the church to seep out into our everyday life in a powerful, identity-shaping, love-grabbing type of way, to let the, the word and the table become things we practice, things we do, things that do things to us on Monday and on Tuesday and on Wednesday and on Thursday and on Friday and on Saturday. We have this this biblical command to, to be cautious about the influence on us and on our families. In this world, there's, there's gods and, and other religions and all kinds of things pulling at you. In our world, there's all these other ideologies and belief systems and allegiances pulling at you. We've got a lot of, of parents in the room have kids, and and you're rightfully cautious about what kind of influences are out there in the world, how they might affect your children, what they might teach your children, how they might shape your child's loves. The scriptures say, cultivate their loves, be intentional about it. In Proverbs, a father tells his son, above all else, guard your heart. And as households, as families, this is our job to guard the hearts of our spouses, to guard the hearts of our kids, to guard the hearts of whomever is in our, our household, in our home. For, for some of us, we've, we're caregiving right now. And so we've got a, a parent or sibling, and that becomes part of our everyday ritual. And so we're to guard our hearts and to guard their hearts. But what if we're missing the real threats to our spouses, to ourselves, to our kids, What if we're constructing defenses against intellectual blasts of ideas or messages from the world, but we're not insulating ourselves from the sort of toxic radiation that gets past our intellectual filters? So we've we've talked about this before, but we kind of largely assume a a very specific belief about human beings, which is that we're rational thinkers. We're thinking things. And so all we really need is to know better— And then things will be better. But all of us experience this is not true. We know more than we can do, more than we can live out. We know what's right, but we still do what's wrong. We said that's because we're embodied people. We're people who do things that then become who we are. It's like riding a bicycle. Riding a bicycle is about way more than knowing how to intellectually form the instructions for riding a bicycle. If you don't believe me, find an adult who doesn't know how to ride a bicycle. Let them read about it for a few minutes until they, they really understand how it works, and then push them off. You know, there was an engineer uh, who, um, you know, it was part of a team of engineers, and um, what I believe is they would kind of play, uh, play pranks on each other. And, and so they designed a bicycle um, that when you turned, you know, the handlebars to the right, the wheel went to the left. So it went backwards of what we all kind of grew up doing. And, and there are videos of this online um, you can kind of watch this, and so they got their friend on the bicycle, and was like, we got you a new bike, and he goes, and then boom, immediately crashes, right? And they kind of accidentally discovered something, which is that an adult has a very, very, very hard time relearning how to ride a bike. The mechanics actually don't change at all, right? It's just one, one intellectual shift. Just go this way instead of this way. And they tried, and they tried, and they tried, and it was crash, crash, crash. Because riding a bike is something that you know in your body. It's muscle memory. Even more fascinating, they put a kid on the bike. And it took the kid roughly the amount of time to learn the backwards bike because it takes for a kid to learn a regular bike as the adults kept crashing over and over again. They got more kids, and what they found is is kids are able to do this. They're they're more flexible. This is, in a negative sense, what's scary about habit. Habits are hard to break. If you have a bad habit from a young age, you might, as an adult, recognize that it's wrong. You might know why. You're crashing when you turn this way, and yet you'll find over and over and over again, you still do it. You, you, it's, a, it's a glitch in your system. It's like muscle memory in your very kind of body, in your very being. But, but children take in this information, which is why the scriptures are so serious about fostering and being intentional about our kids, protecting their hearts, cult, uh, cultivating their loves. I think parenting strategies that assume that that kids are primarily thinking things miss the boat. Most of my ministry, outside of a Sunday morning context with you guys, is with kids. Middle schoolers, occasionally middle school mainly, high school even more so, and then university students as a professor. And I see this over and over and over and over again. It's kind of um, embedded in our kind of evangelical Christianity. The idea is this, thinking that kids are just intellectual bins that store information. We foster their faith by providing them with biblical knowledge. So they learn stories and facts and verses, and they know it well. They've got it. They've got the information. And then you give them the right answers to questions. Not as important if they really understand why that answer fits, but they've got the puzzle, and they know the answer there. And Maybe you've been in that context where you had a question, you were given the answer, and you're like, well, that's not really what I was going for. And it's like, nope, that's the answer. You give them the answers to the questions, and then you slowly, and this is not always done, but ideally in this, this framework, you would start to um, cultivate in them the ability to defend themselves, to discern against other teachings, false teachings. And what happens is over and over and over again, those kids have loves that are disordered, that are pulled in another direction. Because kids like adults like humans are liturgical. We're embodied creatures. It's the things that we do and the things that we do over and over again, the things we practice at, that shape what we love, what we desire, and who we become. Because what we desire is what we'll do. What would it look like to parent lovers? and not thinkers? What would it look like to cultivate love for God and desirers, and not just rational creatures? What would it look like to create a household that would be a formative space to order your desires, and that of your spouse, and whoever else may be with you? How can a home be a place where we find the worship of the the church, to continue to shape and form us in the right direction? Well, I think we would, we would need to be concerned about, I'll call it the vibe of the house or the household, this unspoken kind of energy, if you will. Um, you can recognize this particularly when it's wrong, right? So you walk in, your spouse might have had an awful day. You might not know about it, but you know as soon as you initiate conversation. They might not tell you I've not I've had an awful day, but it's in the air, We would want to be intentional about what the vibe is in, in our household on a daily basis. We'd, we'd want to tune our homes and our hearts to, the, to the, the key of gratitude, which is the appropriate and first response to grace. So if human beings are exhibiting gratitude to God, it means we've got a pretty good lock on his gifts in our life, on the grace that he has, has given us. We'd be intentional about the constant background noise of our life that makes up the routines that we participate in, the rituals that we undertake. We'd know that you could have Bible inputs in your house, in your household every day, and yet you could still have a household where this kind of frantic lifestyle homes along pulling your heart into a story of consumerism. You could get up in the morning and read a paragraph with a Bible verse and a prayer, and then put it back in the bookshelf and go live a life where your loves are for anything but God. You can throw the knowledge at it, but again, it's not really touching you at the deepest places of your desires, your wants, your worship. You have Bible verses on the wall, but the unspoken rituals reinforce other things like self-centeredness and not sacrifice, like narcissism and not service, we live in a, in a, in a world, and, and perhaps it's always been this way, but, but our world is one that creates such a fast-paced lifestyle that we often do most things without thinking about them. We live unintentionally. And if it's true that we're shaped by what we do and what we do on a regular basis, then this is a dangerous thing for us to do things regularly without really knowing why we do them or what they are doing to us or to our kids. A few weeks ago, I, I, I suggested that perhaps we would take a liturgical audit of our culture, that we'd look around and see what are the practices we're invited into, the rhythms and the rituals and the routines that shape us, that do something to us, that pull us toward a, a story that we're in, that, that give us a vision of what's desirable, what the good life is. This morning, I'm inviting you to do a liturgical audit of your house, your, your household, your family. Think about this. Tomorrow morning, you wake up. What's the routine? What's the ritual? If you don't have a ritual, you do have a ritual. The ritual might be chaos and stress, but that's still a ritual. Okay, you've got your coffee first thing. That's that's obvious. Okay, granted. What's going on? How do you engage with your spouse? How do you engage with your kids? What's the morning routine? What are you doing? What are you listening to? What are you talking about or thinking about? You go to work. What's happening? What are you doing? What happens regularly? What do you do regularly that shapes you and moves you and and, and starts to become who you are? You come home and in the evening. What are you doing? Put the kids to bed. What's happening? What happens over and over and over and over again? How's that shaping you? How's that shaping your spouse? How's that shaping your kids? We might need to ask ourselves these routines. What story is being carried in them? What character are we in the story of our routines? Are we the constantly behind person in a world of acquisition and productivity? Or are we the self-centered hero of a world of productivity and consumerism? What, what story are we being drawn into? What's the vision of the good life that's being carried in these practices? What sorts of people are being made by these, these practices? Now, this is going to be highly contextual. What works and what doesn't work. So a retired couple, the kind of worship they'll be able to participate in that will shape them in a healthy and, and biblical way is going to be different than the kind of worship that takes place in a household with little kids. And those with college or high school students are going to be different than those who are newlyweds. I mean, It's going to depend largely on uh, the different people in your relationships, in your home, the different situations and ages that they're at. But you can bet that the routines and rituals are powerful and are shaping, and particularly your, your kids. It's the routines I think that we take for granted because we don't usually think about these that have the most power to form us without our, our knowledge. We think of them as just things that we do and never think through what they do to us. Now, you know, once we've perhaps critically assessed the things that we're caught up in, then we can start to, you can start to more intentionally putting in practices of worship to counteract those things, those, those pools on your life. First and foremost, like we suggested, I think our households need to be caught up in the wider household of God. So the way that worship first and foremost speaks about our households is it relativizes them. When we come to church, we'll take two examples baptism. When we are baptized, one of the things that is happening is we're being initiated into the people of God. In baptism, your bloodline is relativized. There's another family, and now you're a part of it. The nuclear family, this, this autonomous little group, which is a fairly recent invention, and the church is not left to itself, to its own resources, to its own wisdom. It doesn't collapse in on itself. It gets the wisdom and support of the church. Or in traditions like ours where we don't baptize infants, we have baby dedications. And in a typical baby dedication, there's a point where the congregation is no longer just spectators, but they participate and they commit to partnering with the parents and looking after and praying for the kids as they, they grow up. It's good news for parents, baptism and baby dedications, because you don't have to raise those crazy kids on your own. When they're crying all night, and they've got a fever, there are people there with you and for you. Ten years later, when they're not crying at night because they're not home, you've still got people who are praying and who are for you. When we think about what it would look like to pull the, the rhythms of the Word and the table into our, our daily lives Um, I think we we can say a few things definitively that will apply throughout context. First, I think family worship will be formative to the extent that it taps into our imaginations, to the extent that it's more than just knowledge, more than just kind of an intellectual dump into our heads or the heads of our kids. We need stories, narratives. We need poetry and song, music. Music's very, very important. If you've got kids, or you have a spouse, you have a family, or even just if you're single by yourself, music is is very, very important because it touches you at a place that just words don't touch. It shapes you at a place that just um, information doesn't shape you. If you just take the—I the, I don't use song lyrics in sermons because I quickly discovered just saying the words of the song don't really do justice to the meaning of those words in the song. Does that make sense? St. Augustine is famous for saying once, he who sings has prayed twice. He's trying to get at that sense, that notion, that the the poetry and and the images of of music. We need symbols, stories, song. Worship, particularly with our kids, it's going to be tactile, it's going to be tangible, it'll be incarnate, it'll take on material shape. If you have little ones, you know this is how they learn by touching and doing, by acting out through all of their senses. Children like us are ritual creatures. They absorb the gospel in ways that speak to their imaginations, in ways that catch their loves through their bodies. We might decide that it would be helpful for us, cultivating this type of worship in our households, to let the Christian year, the, the liturgy of the church in time, start to come into our household. So in, in the Christian calendar, we've got Advent and Christmas and Epiphany and Pentecost and Lent and Easter. And these are very unique ways to live into the life of Jesus. With a family, these are ways to have these tactile rituals at Advent. You and your kids can create an Advent wreath together. You can light the candles together. During Lent, you can do some form of fasting, Prepare for Easter. There are these things you can do. The, the point is not to retreat from the world, but to be intentional about how we're being formed so that we can be faithful in the world around us. When we worship daily correctly, it enchants all of the world. We we start to realize more and more instinctively that the world is not just kind of a flat nature. It's charged with the presence and activity of God all around us, inside of us. Never underestimate the smallest things and the impact that they might have on somebody, particularly kids. This, this bicycle analogy, right? One small thing over the course of many, many years becomes a big thing. And it's so powerful when we when we treat um, our kids, when we, when we um, worship with them, when we design intentional practices to, to get them into worship with us. One thing you could do, perhaps, if you had um, little ones in, in your household that you're, you're trying to do this with and, and you're trying to never f- underestimate this formative power is, is you might discover the worship capabilities of the dinner table, just like our table. You might find that this kind of regular eating together creates in children this, this appreciation of the promise of a loving presence, what do we have in God and in our parents. You might find that even when they fight and bicker with their siblings, this too is worship practice. They're learning how to forgive. They're learning how to love. They're learning how to get along and exist with someone they don't particularly enjoy at the moment. This is important. At the table, around the word, kids need to be taught how to lament, how to be sad. Mourning is something that doesn't come naturally. As a high school teacher in Sugarland, I saw this quite a bit. Children who were never taught how to be sad, who only knew how to be happy, and that's Only what they expected is how to be happy. And let me define these children for you. Miserable. Both for the people around them, but really I'm talking about themselves. They are miserable. Because the world is a sad place. Bad things happen all the time. One of the kindest things you can do to your kids is teach them how to lament. Not to deflect or ignore these, these painful realities, but to take them seriously, to feel them, to express them with the hope that we have in Christ. We grieve, but not as those without hope. Which I've seen working with kids, kids will learn how to be sad at some point in their life. The question is whether they'll do it properly, whether they've been taught. If they haven't, then they'll deflect and ignore, and it'll cause havoc in their lives. Or they'll do it without some kind of hope, and they'll crumble in on themselves. It happens every day. These routines, these rituals. They start in the church and they work their way out into our life. We we've got to be very careful that we don't underestimate the power of this. I have parents come to me all the time asking why their kid is behaving in the way they, they do, why their kid loves the things they love. And their kid's not been to church in seven years. Parents most likely haven't either. And I don't really know where quite to start. What, what, what did you think that they were being taught to love? And in and, and most of the cases, and I'm not trying to bash on parents here, um, this is just a lived experience I have over and over and over again. They want to know what happened. In, in, in a lot of the cases, the kids were in a Christian school in my environment. They got the knowledge they knew the stories, they had the facts, they knew the answers, but that never touched their loves, it never shaped them. One of the big things the church is facing right now is a rivalry with sports, and year-round sports, competitive sports. And I am the sports person, and so I hate to take such an offensive stance, except to say that I've, I think it's damaging when you take your kids out of a church community and replace it with something else. Don't think that the sports teams and sport itself is not teaching your kids something. And don't think that it might not be different from what they might be taught elsewhere. So I, I've, 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 I kind of sometimes workshop ideas before a sermon. I've brought this up a couple times in group context, and I've gotten pushback every time. And I understand it. I get it. I'm not trying to shame anybody. I'm trying to be for people, right? I'm trying to try to help. If you want, you want my analysis, this is, this is what I'm seeing that's very obvious to me. Is it a cure? No. Do kids go to church and love wrong things? Yes. But this would be where I would start. And the pushback's been this. From, a, from adults who maybe had this experience or had a bad church experience, they'd say, how dare you not realize that most churches are toxic places that hurt kids, that don't provide the answers and the things that they look for, and might find community and love and examples and role models in sports in those communities. And I go, I get it. I understand that. But why does the parent's job only apply? To sports, not to churches. So here's here's my response as I've thought about it and formulated it. There's a lot of sporting communities unhealthy for kids. I don't know if you watched the news or not recently. It's very, very unfortunate. But your kid can be just as hurt, if not more so, in that type of community. But guess what? It's your job as the parents to make sure that community is safe and loving and productive, right? It's your same job when it comes to a church. It's, it's not that church has somehow failed, that worship has somehow failed. It's that you you gave up, the parent gave up this, this responsibility to be at the, the right church, worshiping in the right way. I mean, it, it makes a difference. There's this ongoing dance, I think, that should be happening between the rhythms of gathered worship and the rhythms of our sent lives, Monday through Saturday, with our spouses. Spouses need to learn how to and begin to worship together, to pray to each other, to confess to one another, to encourage one another. A couple that that doesn't go to God together should not be surprised when they find the rest of their lives not going to God together. They haven't been practicing this. Will prayer fix those problems? No, but I mean, it's a start. You might find that the more you practice this in real tangible ways, in five years you'll wake up and be like, I'm pretty good at this. It's kind of become who I am. It's second nature, this, this grace that, that God has given me. God is, at all times, smiling on us, pouring out his love into our lives, when we can see it when we can't see it loving our kids and our spouses and our family members. Our job is to learn how to smile back. And that happens on Sundays when we practice worship, when the Spirit works in our hearts and our minds. And it happens on Monday and Tuesday and so on, when we pull worship into the regular practice of our lives. So I encourage you this, this week, this afternoon, think about what are the routines of my life? What are they doing or not doing? Once we have that, what, what perhaps can we implement? What can we be intentional about starting or doing? And the great thing about this is that you're not thrown in on yourself. Again, you're part of a community. It's hard sometimes to come up with new ideas just yourself because all you know is you and what you experience. Good news is there are other couples that you can ask for advice. There are other parents that you can ask for advice. There's a collective wisdom of a group of people all seeking the Lord together that will produce the kind of love that we're commanded to produce in Deuteronomy. We pray with me. Father, we love you. We thank you for the families that you've given us. We thank you for the routines that you invite us into. We thank you for the, the commands in Scripture to analyze our lives, think about what we're doing and loving when we wake up and when we go to sleep and when we sit and when we walk, that we're not abandoned to a, a life without reflection, without intentionality. Father, I pray that you would allow the, the worship that we participate in here to radiate out throughout our lives. I pray that you would allow us to do the hard but meaningful work of cultivating that worship and love with our family members and our households. At all times and all moments, help us to smile back, to reflect back in gratitude the grace that has always been ours. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All of God's people prayed, saying,